fire, earth, water, air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Water Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe... Aang can save the world. Distorted Reality by Bathan. Chapter 67 Comet and Moon. Saryu's Moon. Part 3. Author's Notes. Here we are for the final update. Happy 15th birthday, Distorted Reality. Two new updates. Boomerang95 from Instagram created a distorted reality animated opening complete with an Azula voiceover. It really is such amazing work. Also, Roth the Primordial on Tumblr commissioned art of Aang and Azula's reunion from an artist named Cetrus109 and it is absolutely gorgeous. Highly recommend checking them both out. They're linked in my profile. Before going any further, I want to give a special thanks to Rocket Exanu, Madame Melon Meow, and C for being my beta readers for this finale. Your help and input has been so appreciated and really brought the journey of the winter moon together. Thanks to M3 and C's efforts, this finale of the audiobook is being updated in tandem with these chapters. The Journey of the Winter Moon Chapter 3 Comet and Moon Serio's Moon Part 3 The Intense Heat burned his skin even without the direct touch of fire. Ozai's onslaught was unrelenting. Smoke from the forest around them choked the air. Aang struggled to breathe as he fled from Ozai's pursuit, but with the power of the comet at his back, the Phoenix King commanded the skies as easily as Aang did. Earth, wind, and water did little to hold his assault at bay. It was all Aang could do to survive, much less fight back. He thought... He had been ready. They'd exchanged few words when Aang and Ozai beheld each other for the first time. With tears barely held back, his voice low and shaking with sorrow and grave finality, Aang had been the one to tell Ozai that his brother had been slain at Ba Sing Se. Aang had found Iroh after Azula already struck him down, but when Zuko arrived on the scene, Aang couldn't bear to stay and watch him battle his sister in rage and grief. Ozai had only laughed in triumph. With the tragedy of his family unfolding before him, he could only celebrate the added boon that came on the day of his ascension. Aang expected, or rather hoped for, at least a spark of humanity. Aang pulled his forearms together to make two pillars come crashing in front of him, a split-second defense against the roaring flames. They licked the air, immolated the grass and the trees, and seared the stone where Aang had been standing just as Aang hurled himself away. Tales of his own fire rained down on Ozai in retaliation, but the Phoenix King spread his arms and an arc of cutting flame dispersed Aang's own. He armored himself in earth, stood his ground, and summoned gales to push Ozai away, but Ozai refused to give him space. His defenses shattered, 
Swirling wind surrounded Aang in a tornado to carry him away, and when it brought him to higher ground, among the smoke of burning trees, Ozai shot the first bolt of lightning at him. It sounded like Ozai cleaved the sky in two. It forked and spread from his fingertips, the glow among the ash reminiscent of stories from the deepest, darkest places of the spirit world. Aang plummeted to the ground to avoid him, fleeing from the stinging scar on his back, his breath hitched in fear. He had to turn around, had to keep Zuko's lesson in mind. He could do this. Now. When he found himself in an open clearing with nowhere to hide, he turned and caught Ozai's next lightning strike in his hands. He held it between his fingertips, the power surging in him, a vibration so strong it was painful. It didn't want to be contained. It couldn't be contained. It crackled around his body, but he remembered the lesson and the repeated movements, and it was almost muscle memory that reminded him to take it in, down to his stomach, and out. When he held it in his other hand, ready to be redirected, he locked eyes with Ozai. Ozai knew that Zuko wielded this technique, but perhaps he didn't think it would be passed on so quickly to Aang. He saw the momentary lapse of arrogance in the Phoenix King's eyes, the slip of his expression to something almost vulnerable. Now was the moment. He could end this. Yet, as he felt the energy coursing through him, all of his love, fear, and grief for his people and the teachings they upheld fought to guide his hand away from pointing to Ozai. The reminder that all life, even Ozai's, was precious. But in the split second, the minutes, the hours that he held the lightning, he let the grief and the anger flood in. The nomads guiding Aang's hand burned to ash and the Fire Nation soldiers appeared in their places. In Ozai's eyes, he saw Hakoda and Bato and all those that they lost in the invasion. He saw Iroh and his disappointment. Aang released the lightning in Ozai's direction, war in his eyes and in his primal yell that he didn't even know he let out. But Ozai caught the lightning, too. It was imperfect. Twice-reflected lightning had a way of getting out of hand, it seemed. It might have been panic or an experience. Ozai struggled to contain it. Aang was so rooted in place with surprise that if he aimed it back at Aang, he wouldn't have been able to dodge. But instead, Ozai released it to the only place he could, up into the sky. His hands smoked, the flesh of his hands burned with a raw, ugly brand. Disheveled, Ozai directed his gaze back to Aang, and pure contempt flashed across his eyes. I didn't expect that from you, was all he said. Aang fled, horrified at what he had failed to do, what he had almost done. Despite knowing he almost had the upper hand, he felt the lingering sting at his fingertips and the scar on his back. Ozai shot no more lightning, and his unceasing conflagration continued. A streak of brilliant scarlet soared across the sky like a phoenix's tail, breaking the turbulent, unending azure of Sirius moon. Iroh felt its power invigorating him, the sea of chi at his core rising up to meet the comet like the push and pull of tides. It filled him with both dread and hope as they left the spirit portal behind them and flew on the backs of spirits to the city of Agnakela. How strange it is, he said to himself, unheard by any of his white lotus companions. 
The red sky seemed like a far-off dream come to life. That the symbol of ruin in one world could become salvation in another. He knew it could only be the work of spirits, their only hope against the three-day empowerment of the waterbenders. He exchanged a glance with Kana as they flew, their sense of urgency rising. If they were to save the people of Agnakela from the betrayal of their southern kin, they had to act. And perhaps, Iroh hoped, they would succeed here where he had once failed. When Sangmu reached the northern border of Agnaquela, bewildered by both the celestial objects in the sky, she could only react with horror when she witnessed the chaos in the city. Oh no, she said, gasping as she held both Momo and Sabi close. What's happening now? After emerging from the spirit portal and meditating on the location of the nest of darkness, she found her own spirit drawn to it projecting over a great distance as if it pulled her in. Thanks to what she could only assume to be an unexpected application of air spirit bending, she now knew where she had to go to cleanse the city of its darkness. An oasis of sorts, a place of once great spiritual importance. She could just feel how powerful it was, how it used to be, and how ill it made her, even without her physical body. Below a sky, both blue and red, the city was under siege. A massive fleet of water tribe ships assailed them from outside the city walls, bombarding Agnaquala with flaming pitch and oil, or ice and tidal waves, with the sea at their disposal. The North fought back, but even Sangmu could tell they were vastly outnumbered. She had no idea who attacked the city or why, but it seemed to her a concentrated force. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The darkness lingered in the night seer's wake, giving form to nightmares even worse than the assault. Drawn to gorge on the conflict, monsters the size of buildings tore apart the ice walkways over the canals with massive arms and grasping tentacles. Even from above the city, she could hear the screams. Stopping the spirits was what she came to do. She couldn't hope to fight off all the waterbenders attacking the city but dispelling the darkness was something within her power. She just had to make it to the oasis. Both the lemurs perched on her shoulders as if bracing her for what she had to do. Come on, Momo and Sabi, she said, unfurling her glider. First, we'll sneak to the oasis to deal with the spirits. Then we'll worry about whatever's next. With Paku, Bumi, and Toph gone, the invasion forces fighting in the snowfields outside Aniakto found themselves hard-pressed from all sides, especially when the other clans arrived. The snowfields turned into floodlands. The cold seeped through Haru's clothes, his boots heavy with water. Its frigid touch started to become as great a concern as the battle itself. Harun joined the battle outside the city because he knew battles like this best. He was a soldier. He knew what it was like to fight as part of a greater unit, to lose allies and push back regardless, to drop everything and help the wounded or trust the people alongside you through only your shared cause. With only enough of Spriggy's bender remedy left for Gashun and Azula, he knew he had to leave the city to them, and that he couldn't subject any of his friends to a battle like this.
Even with the other clans adding to the enemy numbers, Haru found himself worried for his friends inside the city more than he worried for himself. Their forces were not down for the count yet, though. Lord Ozai led the offensive, striking every time the tide reared back. General Zhang joined the fray shortly after Aang departed to seek out the Emperor, shoring up their defenses with her earthbenders. Siwang sandbenders and Ba Sing Se soldiers fought side by side, while Dai Li agents skirted through the battlefield to carry the wounded back to the medic tents or relay orders between the front and rear lines. Even the Crab Spider clan, in their helmets made from the carapace of their namesake, flowed through the battle to help make up for the absence of the White Lotus leaders. Haru fought his way towards the walls, throwing himself into the battles where the fighting was thickest. He found himself near Lu Ten, the soldier he only vaguely knew from Chameleon Bay. So Haru joined his mallets to Lu Ten's spear. Water roared toward them with enough force to erode Haru's defenses, but Lu Ten was quick enough to circle around their attacker and take them out with a spear swipe to the legs, tripping up the enemy warrior and bashing them on the head with the blunt end. Throughout the battlefield, blue flows of water and white of the packed snow began to mix with red, and as more ice spikes erupted from the ground as weapons, their cores glimmered crimson. Haru didn't know which side most of the blood came from, but it didn't matter. Watch the lake! Lu Ten shouted out, bellowing orders to those who followed him. Stay steady! The sky changed. The blue moonlight rippled through the Everstorm's clouds, a streak of something red and gold scattering light across its surface. The black clouds began to melt away into pockets of darkness, and the scarlet in the sky blended into a deep purple, more brilliant than the sunset after a storm. Haru realized that a comet had joined the second moon. Ahead of them, closer to the wall, fire burst from a single person's form, and when the flash settled down, he recognized Ozai at the center of it. The blast had cleared a space around him, and when a handful of warriors charged him again, a torrent of fire surged from his feet to carry him above them, where he then came crashing down with more fire from a single bender than Haru had ever seen. Eyes forward, soldier! Luten yelled, saving Haru from a costly mistake. The frozen earth underneath him shifted just fast enough to push Haru away from being gored by a spear. The gathered Fire Nation men and women paused, catching their breaths, their eyes drawn to the spectacle in the sky. Near the eastern wall, Aniakto opened its gates to release a contraption on sled runners, something between a catapult and a harpoon gun that hurled massive sludge bombs over the battlefield. They braced themselves, weapons shaking, but before the new weapon loaded up a second time, a woman, with a whalebone blade almost as big as she was, seemed to come from nowhere to hack it apart with a single swing. It exploded in a mass of wooden splinters that didn't seem to harm the woman, who only laughed with glee as she continued her rampage through the midst of enemy warriors. That comet's here to help us, Haru said, smashing the spear between his mallets and dispatching his assailant with a kick. We can still fight back. Let's go help whoever that is. I'm not sure she needs it, said Luten, hesitating in a way that Haru could only assume meant the view perplexed him but I heard the Beaver Bear clan was coming to help us, so I'm going to assume that's Chief Liren. Seems they arrived. The soldiers' quivering knees stopped, the spectacle in the sky forgotten. Though a mix of Earth Kingdom and Fire Nation, they all looked at each other with equal confusion, especially when a boy with goggles over his eyes and a metal pole in his hands showed up, crouching among them with his chest heaving. 
Teo! Luten exclaimed. What are you doing out here? I need to get into the city, the boy named Teo said, panting. Can you help me? I heard there was a plan to help the benders trapped there. I, I had an idea. We'll get you there, Haru said, joining his power to two other earthbenders to summon a rampart. Teo looked at him and gasped. It's you! Haru braced himself as the waterbenders battered his defenses. Me? What about me? He was pretty certain he'd never met the boy at all, but now was not the time to ponder that. Teo seemed to agree with his unspoken thoughts, shaking his head vigorously. Never mind. You can clear the way? Haru's mallets crashed against his wall, hurling it forward. We're heading to the wall anyway. Earthbenders, follow my lead. Zuko tried not to think about what the battle looked like outside the city. Inside Aniokto, the skirmishes were separate and disjointed, lacking any cohesion or strategic planning. Just by turning a corner, they were liable to run into friend or foe, and now without a waterbender on their side, they had to play it safe, or else they ran the risk of running into a whole squad of moon-enhanced benders. Gashan was their only bender operating at full strength with Azula and Katara combing the other parts of the city with Yue, and he couldn't stand up to them on his own. He felt cold, his breaths escaping him with every step. He had no idea he had come to rely on bending so much now that he didn't have it again. I don't think it's a great idea for us to be heading in that direction of all those explosions, Jet pointed out. They seemed to be coming from the eastern border of the city. Suzuko guessed that the combustion man must have been outside of the ice domes, perhaps up on the wall. With each blast that struck the domes, everything shook and sometimes ice crumbled, making them fear that they would take the entire city down with one of his reckless assaults. If he truly was up on the wall, then that must have meant his job was to pick off anyone who tried to escape from under the domes. <clears throat> it's not quite in his direction, Zuko rasped, pointing Tai Li and Gashun towards their destination, a little further north. They had reached the artisan's quarter, which meant they were close. From the sliver of sky he could see between the domes and the wall, something seemed strange to him about the lack of blue and the vivid scarlet that replaced it. The Earl Chemical Institute is that way, but does the sky look weird to anyone? It was so blue before, with Seru's moon. No weirder than it has been for weeks, said May, speaking so quickly it was almost dismissive. I wouldn't overthink it. Maybe there's a comet now or something. Huh? Hey, it's you guys, shouted a deep, booming voice from down the road behind them. Each of them whirled around, and for a moment Zuko thought that the mountain of a man rushed towards them in an attack. But he had a smaller child up on his shoulders, with a helmet too big for his head. Jet, it's really you, the child exclaimed, and then Zuko recognized them. Jet's jaw dropped, but then his expression changed to a level of joy that Zuko had never seen in him. Pipsqueak? The Duke? You're both okay. Once Pig Sweep came closer, Zuko noticed that he had an unconscious Nagi in his arms. Just as he was about to ask what happened, Gashun ran to Pipsqueak's side. Nagi! She's breathing, so I think she's fine, said the Duke, climbing down from Pipsqueak's shoulders. She was wandering around the streets with Longshot, looking lost, but someone hit her in the back with some needle that came out of nowhere, and it made her even loopier than she already was. 
Out of the middle of the street, said May, eyes fixed to the tops of the buildings. Now. Someone with needles? Tylee asked. She pointed directly at May. But you use those, May. Everyone looked at her, perplexed. But May only scowled at them. Really? I've literally been with you this entire time. Tylee shook her head vigorously as they scrambled to the shadows of the ice buildings. No, we were only hoping you'd be able to tell us what's wrong with Geshen's sister. I don't know, said May, turning back towards the direction Pipsqueak and the Duke came from. Some kind of poison, maybe? Poison, Geshen said. His eyes narrowed as he took Nagi from Pipsqueak's arms. Her head lolled onto his shoulder. Think we can get an antidote at the Institute? Nagi stirred, her eyes struggling to focus. Jen, is that you? I'm fine. Vending's just broken. Arms are like jelly. Her voice came out in a weak mumble. She was with Longshot, Smellerby, and Bandit, but we all got separated, the Duke pointed out. Longshot was able to keep the needle person away, but Nagi ended up with us. We're trying to help evacuate the city. Even Water Tribe kids need some help, said Pipsqueak. We've been finding them. He trailed off, causing Jet to look at him in concern. Pip? Oh, said Pipsqueak, and then fell face first into the snow. A needle protruded from the center of his back. The Duke and Jet both shouted out in alarm. Pipsqueak! I'm okay, he said, his voice muffled. Jet plucked the needle out and both he and Tylee tried to flip Pipsqueak onto his back, struggling under his bolt. Just can't move. All of you get out of here, said May, stilettos appearing in her hands. Whoever this is, I'll handle them. Zuko pressed against the wall, using it to support himself. But, May? I can't leave Pip here, Jet said, crouched protectively over him. Swords drawn as if he aimed to deflect any other projectiles from the roof drops. Just get to the Institute, said May, glancing at them out of the corner of her eye. I'm best equipped for this. You can leave your teammate with me. A ripple of understanding seemed to pass between the two of them that went over Zuko's head, but eventually Jet nodded. With Gashan lifting his sister in his arms again, Jet went to support Zuko. He hated how helpless he felt and how much his chest clenched with worry. May, he said, his breaths rapid. It wasn't fair that they had to split up again so soon after reuniting. Just be careful. Don't worry, Zuko, she said. Zuko just barely managed to see a glint of light in the air, but May's hand flashed and her stiletto deflected the needle flying towards him in midair. I will. Go on. Move it, all of you. I'll cover your backs. Let me stay. I'll avenge Pipsqueak, said the Duke, shaking his spear threateningly but Jet pulled him along with them. Still on the ground, Pipsqueak grumbled as they departed. But I'm still alive! Yue wanted to question Katara about everything that had happened since Ba Sing Se, especially how she had come to join the Avatar's allies, and the circumstances behind needing a cane now. But that also meant explaining everything that had happened to Yue, and she wasn't sure if she was willing to talk about that yet especially in the presence of a firebender she didn't really know. And perhaps now was not the time anyway. Katara swung her cane like a warrior's club, slamming a deluge of water against the wall of bone shields barring their way. 
The shields cracked and crunched under her attack, sending the men underneath sprawling. The waterbenders among them retaliated, and Azula punched, a sunburst of orange and yellow filling the square. Well, well, said Azula, as their enemies fled. It's a shame we can't see the comet going by above us, because it just feels glorious. Seeing it must be even better. Where did it even come from? Yue asked. She had met a spear of this comet, Souza, herself, and the phoenix seemed to be in no condition to fly again in this world. Couldn't resist the opportunity to show off, could you? Katara asked, blocking off one of the streets with a wall of ice. Waterbenders aren't the only ones who get to be special today, said Azula, breathing in deep, savoring breaths. Yue genuinely couldn't tell if they hated each other or if they might have actually been friends. They kept moving. Between the two of them, Yue didn't have to do much fighting, which was just fine with her. But something curious happened shortly after they discovered a trio of stranded Earth Kingdom soldiers, a thrumming in the air that felt as if it made Yue's skin vibrate, a spiritual power so potent that they all sensed it. Katara and Azula both seemed particularly affected, their faces twisting in pain. A light cut through the air above the buffalo yak stables nearby, searing the space above it. Yue thought light spirits would surge out of it, but instead something green and bulging forced its way through, growing and twisting into a thick vine that descended on the stables and split, encasing them. Glowing mushrooms grew from the vines in a myriad of colors and patterns. The spirit world is breaking through, Yue said. Even with the moon spirit inside of her instead of the night spirit, she still felt attuned to the movement and energy all around them. The White Lotus and their wards aren't enough, said Azula, teeth grit. We're running out of time. The appearance of the spirit vines drew the attention of more warriors. But when Katara and Azula faced them, a different waterbender assaulted the warriors from behind, sandwiching them between two different waves of water. Yue was elated to see Sokka on the other end of it. Sokka! Yue exclaimed. Wasn't Suki with you? Long time no see, he said, offering a wave. Suki didn't stick with me for long. She went through all that effort to go looking for me and then went off to find the others going to the Institute for some reason. Yue smiled. That sounded just like Suki. All she wanted was to make sure Sokka was okay, but she didn't want to let him know that. What happened to Gilak? Katara asked. Please tell me you gave him a good beating for the way he spoke to us. Something about what she said seemed to bother Sokka for a moment, but he shook his head. I got away, but something he told me has me worried. Azula's posture tensed. What is it now? I know things are bad here, but if we don't do something now, that Earth Kingdom fleet will be going right to their deaths, Sokka said. Gilak told me our dad's heading a diversionary fleet that was meant to mislead us into thinking he'd depart for the Earth Kingdom. Dad's fighting this battle on four fronts, and though Dad himself is not at the most important one, it's somewhere he can do a lot of damage. Kuei and basically the entire navy of Ba Sing Se are there. Four separate fronts? Katara asked, scowling. It's like a pie show game where he's a dozen moves ahead, said Azula. He lured our main fighting force to Aniakto to trap us with his tricks pretending his main allies among the clans were preoccupied with the Wolverine skunks for longer than they were, 
so they could ambush us. Then he sent the North Pole fleet to the Fire Nation. It may not be enough to completely flood them, but with Shir Yu's moon they'll deal a devastating blow to the Golden City at the very least. Then, Hakoda's main fleet is accomplishing his primary goal, conquering the North Pole and wiping out the influence of the Night Seer. All while Hakoda himself turned around our plan for the bossing Sane Navy to keep his forces preoccupied while we invaded Aniakto. But Sir Yu's moon coming early gave him all of the advantages. Am I following? Yue found herself a little lost halfway through, but Sokka responded without missing a beat. Yeah, that about sums it up. Aang went that way to face him, but Kuei's navy will be defenseless. Sokka frowned, as if weighing something. Then he slowly directed his eye to Katara. Katara, you and I can go help them. And... If Aang needs us to beat Dad, we'll be nearby to help. Yue blinked in surprise, then felt herself wanting to embrace them both for comfort and sympathy. Would it feel the same for them as it did for her when she fought against her father? Would Akoda's words be just as cruel as Arnuk's, even without the influence of a dark spirit? Perhaps they wouldn't show the same hesitation she did. She couldn't read the expression that passed over Katara's face but Yue didn't fail to notice the way she clutched the head of her cane. Sokka continued as if watching Katara just as carefully. Aang's been learning bloodbending. I think, together, the three of us can stop him. Without having to kill him. Katara turned to survey the empty streets, almost as if half listening to them, but Yue could tell she still looked tense. Are you asking me to respect the Avatar's wishes and spare him? If you can do it without killing him, then you must try, Yue blurted out. When they all looked at her, she lowered her gaze. I mean, even despite all he's done, whether to you or the entire world, killing your own family is just... She swallowed her words. She wasn't sure if there was a way to say what she wanted to without making it seem like she excused his actions. I fought my father. My actions might have led to his death. She didn't know what happened, in the end, whether the Nightseer claimed his life or his eternal servitude, and she wasn't sure if she ever wanted to know. There wasn't much of him left, but... Sokka's gaze softened. Yue... Yue closed her eyes to quell her tears. Hakoda might deserve it, but you shouldn't be the ones to do it. Let him face justice. We... we're just kids. And no kid should ever have to. To their own parents. Sokka took in a breath, but squared his shoulders again as he looked back at Katara. Katara, I'm not asking you to promise anything. Just... Help us, like you have been doing. Katara matched his gaze, and then her eyes slid to Yue, her expression unfathomable. Saving an entire navy from super-empowered waterbenders, she said. Shouldn't be a problem. I just hope they're enough to keep me entertained. I'm going too, said Azula. Enough of our friends are here, and they are going to put a stop to this whole anti-bending gas thing anyway. But how do you expect us to get to the sea? I think I can help you with that, said Yue, sheathing her blade. She unslung her staff from her back, 
With the leather drum at its head slashed, and the Night Seer's power gone, she wasn't sure if it had anything special about it anymore. But this belonged to her father. With or without powers of its own, it acted as a guide and focus for her intent. I don't think I'll be able to summon goose spirits to help us, but... Something else, perhaps? You can do that? Sokka asked, his eye wide. I don't know, Yue admitted. But she supposed even the moon had a dark side to it. She closed her eyes and tried to recall the feeling of the vibration in the air from earlier, drawing on that energy that flowed so close to them and channeling it through the staff. After facing spirits like the Night Seer and Ko, she found nothing to fear from darkness like this anymore. When she opened her eyes again, three bird-like beings with a massive wingspan appeared from the Spear of Vines. Almost all black, they made Yue think of the Night Seer's ravens for a moment, before she realized they had heads shaped more like a spade, and amorphous wings that looked more like billowing cloaks. Their eyes glowed a shade of red that made her think of the dark spirit sealed within the Tree of Time. They approached, more cautious or curious than aggressive. They won't attack us or anything? Sokka asked, hands held out as if to placate them. They shouldn't, said Yue. She was glad the White Lotus defenses against dark spirits didn't work against her direct efforts to summon them here. They're dark, but it doesn't mean they're bad. Katara was the first to climb onto the back of one, and Azula followed shortly after, as if determined not to be outdone. Both directed their focus ahead, as if they did this every day. Sokka clambered onto his last, stiff as a board. Okay, if you say so. Be careful, okay? Find the others. I will, she said. All of you be careful, too. As they flew off, Yue watched them soar through the air for a moment, before she turned back to her objective. When she rounded the stable covered in spirit vines, she gasped when she saw someone she recognized, standing at the other end of the alley, facing her with a smile. Despite the cold, he wore a thin robe of ice blue, with a pattern of white chrysanthemums, and no adornments on his head of loose, dark hair. His face looked young and jovial, but Yue knew he was nearly thrice her age. That was a neat trick, old student of mine, he said. He drew his blade, the metal against its sheath as silent as snowfall. You consort with dark spirits now. You wouldn't begin to understand anything I've been through since we have last seen each other, she said, drawing her own blade in response. Shimo was captain of the Kokun Samurai, a blade master who could rival the best. Master. Aang knew well the place where he found Hakoda, guided by his vision. Hakoda stood alone separated from his fleet, at the edge where ice meets the sea. A bay between high cliffs, it felt secluded from the rest of the world, the perfect place for young water tribe fishers over the ages to seek dinner for their families and their village. Hakoda waited on top of an iceberg overlooking the sea, where his fleet sailed toward the horizon, toward the Earth Kingdom and King Kuei's navy. Aang left Appa and his glider behind and traveled the rest of the way with water bending and fire bending. The sky shimmered in orange and blue 
the colors vying for supremacy under the light of the comet and moon. He didn't know how Sozin's comet had arrived, but if it would even the playing field, then he would accept it, despite all the memories it brought with it. But that was a different world, a different life. Aang stopped at the edge of the iceberg. You were waiting for me? he asked. Hakoda turned to face him. As always, when Aang met a departed friend in this world, his heart ached. He looked just like the man he knew and admired and respected, family of his family, except for the spikes of a wolverine skunk on his shoulder and a cloak of fur over his back. I was. Had to prevent you from going to stop my fleet, didn't I? Aang would have expected the Conqueror to beat the head of his fleet, utilizing his power the same way Ozai did. But he wasn't surprised by the differences anymore. Hakoda didn't fight on the main stage, and didn't lead the players himself. He stayed separate from it, safe to move his pieces into place. You can still call them off. I could, said Hakoda, but I'd rather talk. Get to know the boy who convinced my son, daughter, and mother to side with him, the supposedly pacifist monk who sent a dear friend into the den of his enemy to assassinate me. I was impressed by that one. Azula almost succeeded, even. Aang shook his head and settled into a loose stance. Though Hakoda's impression was untrue, there'd be no use denying it. You only want to talk to delay me. Delay you, he asked with an amused smile. Why would I do that? I've already won. My fleet will decimate yours with the power of their waterbending. Your invasion force, which managed to take me by surprise, even with what I knew of it beforehand, I'll admit, is in the process of getting crushed right now. Agni Quella will fall, maybe even the Golden City. But if it's a fight you'd prefer, I'll give it. As soon as he finished, Hakoda raised his arms and the whole iceberg lunged, the crack of ice booming. Before the impact, Aang raised both fists and swam through the center of it, emerging from the other side in a swirl of water while it crashed against the ice and formed a massive crater behind him. The water lifting Aang up condensed into tentacles that converged on Hakoda, but he circled the attack around himself and returned it in a barrage of massive ice spikes. The sea level descended as Aang summoned two massive waves on both sides of him and Hakoda let out a breath freezing it and the water he stood upon all at once before he could even launch the attack. It spread in a wave with Aang and Hakoda at the epicenter, coating the entire bay in ice. Snow fluttered around them, and their battle paused for only a moment, long enough for Aang's feet to touch the ice. But the moment he did, he had to leap into movement to avoid the spikes that erupted from the surface. Everywhere Aang stepped, Hakoda was ready with more ice spikes from underneath, as if predicting where Aang would be in order to impale him. It took moments for the entire ice field to turn into a bed of blades, which only stopped when Aang punched the ice below him and an explosion of flames cleared them all away. Aang leapt far to the cliffside, crumbling it to assail Hakoda from above. Before Hakoda could defend against it, Aang pursued the stones with a spinning kick. Fire drilled through the water and ice, imploding in a geyser of water that rippled across the sheets of ice Hakoda had made, shattering them. Ice blades orbited Hakoda like wings, each one following his movements as he wielded two more in his hands and skated across the water towards Aang. Aang drew his sword and their weapons clashed, a high-speed dance across the waves. 
Hakoda moved so swiftly over the surface of the water, it looked like he was flying. Aang's blades smashed the ice swords into shards with each swing, but the shards themselves continued to converge on Aang. A barrier of wind spun around Aang and he retreated to give himself distance, bellowing fire from his lungs in Hakoda's direction. More fire sparked to life in both of his hands, charging in his palms before exploding outward, a massive deluge of heat that evaporated the water Hakoda had used to defend himself. He sank below the waves instead. Aang clung to the cliffside, watching the water churn, and when Hakoda emerged it was with the masterful display of the octopus form, a gargantuan construct of dozens of tentacles. Hakoda looked up, his eyes narrowing at something behind Aang. When Aang directed his attention to whatever Hakoda had noticed, he flipped away from the new arrival in surprise. A massive snake man in a robe with a sword drawn had appeared as if from thin air. How disappointing, said the spirit, his tail flicking in agitation, that the almighty Seryu must share the sky with Suza. I refuse to acknowledge the comet's arrival and rebirth. Aang held his sword ready, unsure of what to think of this interruption in their battle. But you came early. It matters not, said Seryu, hissing at him. Mortal, descendant of Aniak, do you wish to join the power to mine, in body and spirit, to attain the power to vanquish all of your enemies? Aang froze. He didn't know what Hakoda would become if he did blend his essence to Seryu. Was that even possible? What sort of strength did Seryu wield for him to be capable of such a feat? Hakoda held his form, glaring up at Seryu. No, he said and the finality and certainty of his statement shook Aang more than the initial question. Leave us. I've no wish to deal with you any further. I honor you more than you deserve, mortal, said Seryu. The blue of his scales reflected a lusterous sheen under the moonlight. Imagine, you would join me on my journey, and all of the land, sea, and skies would be ours. None of that ever belonged to you, croaked another voice, a woman who appeared on the opposite cliffside, Sedna, the ice spirit. It is winter that coats the world. It is my touch that reaches all of the mountains and rivers and forests, if only for a time. Seryu, my love, my enemy, we meet again. We are indeed enemies now, aren't we? said Seryu. He looked sad, somehow. His snake-like visage pinched in an unbelievable and unknowable mourning. So be it! The space bent around both spirits, and they lunged toward each other, sword and fishing spear flashing, and they vanished. The White Lotus arrived at Agna Kela from the north to find a city engulfed in turmoil. Hakoda's fleet dropped anchor just beyond the defensive wall, their waterbenders battering the city with tidal waves. The comparatively few waterbenders remaining in the city fought hard to defend against the assault, with even the women, normally forbidden from fighting, picking up their weapons out of desperation. Dark spirits penetrated their defenses, their otherworldly forms and unusual abilities allowing them to slip past or fly above. Kana led the counterattack, with Paku and Hu at her back, the trio of waterbenders gliding through the city atop massive water spouts. Ice formed a ramp for all the rest of their entourage to descend from the walls behind the palace. Boomy slid down with Spriggy in his arms, bridal style, both of them howling with glee. It seemed like the sky was alight with fireworks. Iroh stayed on the ground, 
an inferno consuming the dark spirits that tried to converge on the astronomer, while explosions aimed high at others. Zhang Zhang hovered in midair with flames from his feet alongside Lo and Li, a storm of fire and lightning to cover Pian Dao below as he made short work of southern warriors who managed to penetrate the city's defenses. He fought near Wu, who guided the wounded to be tended by Spriggy. Tana paused when she saw the astronomer striding near the canals, almost casually. She spotted a warrior rushing the oblivious scholar from behind with a spear. Tana lunged forward, about to shout a word of warning to her companion, but the astronomer sidestepped his attack without looking, as if distracted by something else, and caught the shaft of his spear under her arm. She snapped it, as if it were an afterthought, and whirled to strike him with her open palm and knock him in the canal, her robes fanning around her. When the three waterbenders reached the walls, Hu swept his arms, and toppled the enemy benders just reaching the top of the wall. Straight-backed and beating his arms in circles in the distinctive style of his tribe, pillars of ice erupted from the wall directly underneath the warriors, using hooks and ice picks to climb into the city, launching them skyward by the dozen. Paku stood next to Kana, his water spout lowering to the ground. "'What do you say, Kana?' he asked. "'Shall we work together to defend our old home?' Kana stepped off of her spout and took a stance alongside him in the snow. Yes, she said, smiling. Let's. May had to admit, her foe was good. They used the rooftops and dim lighting to their advantage, ducking amongst the water tanks and chimney smoke to conceal their presence, their needles striking from any direction. May knew that if she allowed even one to hit her anywhere, the paralyzing venom would take her down for the count. She tried not to venture too far from the freedom fighter named Pipsqueak's prone form, but whenever May emerged from cover to just barely avoid a flying needle, it seemed to come from a completely different direction. If she didn't know any better, she would have assumed her tacker to be one of many. But May knew these tactics. Her own Roku warriors used similar ones. But May had tactics and tricks of her own and when she baited her assailant to attack, she caught a glimpse of who it was. A woman, older than her, her hair done up in an elaborate plate. Their eyes locked for just a moment before the woman vanished again into the smoke. May joined her on a rooftop, giving her the chance to witness other examples of this woman's handiwork. Multiple figures lay motionless on the streets, she can now see from her vantage point, all likely paralyzed or unconscious, or worse, a warrior with a pointed horn headband emerged from the upper level of the smokehouse she stood on, swinging a pair of jagged machetes at her without even a grunt. May managed to whirl away from his attacks just in time, darts launching from her wrists in an attempt to catch him unawares. His reflexes were fast, though. Both of his machetes spun to deflect her attack, and when he swung them at her again, she saw a glint of light out of the corner of her eye, and knew that if she dodged this attack, she would only be struck by one of the flying needles. May made the split-second decision to flick daggers into her hand and cross them in front of herself to outright block his attack. He was much stronger than her. The impact made her arms quiver, and the force behind his blow threw her back and clear off the roof. She slammed into the taller building alongside the smokehouse, then fell to her lower level before hitting the ground, her breath knocked out of her. She struggled to breathe as she tried to force herself to her feet, but he already managed to climb down to pursue his attack. 
May spotted his partner again, who angled herself to aim for May even in the alleyway, and her mind raced to try to find a way out of this. She had just done something strange and mystical, so unlike anything she had done before. Altering the heavens themselves was beyond an accomplishment for someone like her. Maybe this was the universe's way of making her pay for such a thing. For cheating death once. What a drag, she thought. She wondered what would happen to Sousa's comet if she died here. Maybe she should have been more careful. But perhaps Sousa's rebirth meant he didn't need her anymore. Definitely not how I'd like to go. And another figure fell down on the warrior from above, a flicker of gold swiping toward his machetes. May took advantage of the distraction to swat the needle out of the air with her knife, and then took cover. The warrior managed to hold on to both of his blades, but the new arrival stood at May's side. You okay? Suki asked, glancing at her briefly. You just had to run into Chief Sayuk of the Narwhal clan, and I'm guessing his wife Anuna is not far away. Good timing, May replied, taking the moment to check her holsters. You're the Kyoshi brat, aren't you? Sayuk asked, scowling. Suki's attack had made the horde on his forehead slightly askew. Very well. I'll finish you off, too. The cold burned Zuko's lungs as they ascended the steps to the Alchemical Institute, hurrying despite the risk of slipping on the ice. The Institute grounds were outside the domes, so as they climbed, Zuko felt like the multicolored sky would expand and devour them. As soon as they reached the top of the stairway and Zuko took in the full splendor of the sky in its current state, he found himself standing still, completely in awe. I'll never forget the sight of it, said his other self. Sozin's Comet, of all the things to happen in this world. Outside from the shelter of the domes, they had a view of the rest of the city and the battle beyond it. The walls continued to stand tall, the sounds of battle still carrying across the darkened snowfields. The ever-storm continued to rage in pockets of the sky, separate from the moon or comet. Dark spirits flocked in the storm clouds, hungering to enter the city. And then Zuko heard a sound he couldn't describe, a shattering of air and a pulse of energy he had never heard before. A beam of light surged from the top of the wall on the eastern end of the city, dragging across a sliver of street at the edge of the dome. A line of explosions followed in the wake of everything the beam touched. A glint of metal at the top of the wall reflected in the moonlight, and the explosions continued on the other side of the wall. No way. Zuko and his other self knew what it was at once. His theory from earlier turned out to be right, but now he wished he wasn't, now that he could hear it so clearly. That's the Combustion Man! Tylee gasped. That was insane! What kind of power is that? He wished he had an answer for her. His power was horrifying to begin with, but his type of firebending under the comet? He didn't know what to make of it, or what they could even do to match him. His destructive powers were unthinkable. If he directed his devastating powers towards the ice dome, he would destroy the entire city single-handedly. Zuko had hoped that the open air would allow him to bend normally again, but even with the glory of the firebenders overhead, he couldn't so much as breathe embers to life. He ushered his companions along, leading the way as the one most familiar with the area. 
They ran towards a sculpture in the center of the otherwise empty square, a monument to alchemy and science. The pedestal with an inscription in the center, scribed in stone, seemed almost foreboding in the blue moonbeams. A figure walked through the doors of the institute towards them, shoulders slumped. Zuko squinted as the person approached, walking slowly and staring straight ahead. Something about the way they moved unnerved him. Once they stepped out into the light, Zuko drew his swords. Chitsang! he wheezed. The leader of the wolf skulls didn't look directly at Zuko or any of the others. I will destroy all of the Emperor's enemies, he said, his voice steady and even. He made a fist, pulled his hand back, and punched. Whirling flames erupted before him. The blast made them all scatter. The heat filled the square, a constant deluge of fire that streamed from Chitsang's fists, and it was nearly blinding in its brightness. Zuko had no idea if the others were able to avoid the blast, but through instinct he raised his swords and crossed them in front of him in an attempt to block. He didn't know if it was sheer luck or that the fire still obeyed him even though he couldn't produce it, but he warded off the inferno. When it finally died down, Zuko found himself on one side of the square with Jet, while the others hid behind an earthen shelter produced by Gashun, closer to the entrance of the Institute. Chitsang walked forward, still as if he didn't see them. Gashun plunged a hand into the ground to launch a line of rock spikes at Chitsang. At the same time, Tai Li ran at him from behind, but more fire blazed her life in a ring around him that kept them both away from him. Gashun shielded them again, guarding his sister as she struggled to stand. All throughout, Chitsang just faced forward. Something's wrong with him. I can't put my finger on it, but it's like he's not even here, Zuko said, furrowing his brow. All of you, go on ahead. I'll deal with Chitsang. Not alone you won't, said Jet, standing alongside him with his hook swords. Not in your condition. Tylee patted furiously at the smoking sleeve of her parka. We can't just leave you. Zuko kept his eyes on Chitsang, who didn't even hold a stance. You need to turn off the steam tanks, he said. If you do, everyone in the city will be able to fight back again. Chitsang stomped his foot and spread his arms wide, throwing a semicircle of fire that licked the sky. I am Hakoda's loyal wolf, he said. I am the pack that hunts at his command, and you are my prey. Jet ducked behind Zuko to avoid the flames. What's his deal? Some kind of water tribe fanatic? He frowned at Zuko. You sure you're okay? You look like you can barely stand. I'm fine, Zuko said, his voice hoarser than usual. Tylee, Jed and I will handle this. Okay, be careful. She chewed her knuckle with worry, but eventually nodded and pulled Gashun along by the wrist, who in turn carried Nagi over his shoulder. All three disappeared inside the Institute, leaving Zuko and Jet to face their foe together. So, uh, you defend us from his giant firebending attacks, and I'll strike, Jet suggested, since you lost your bending again. This is only the first time I've lost it, Zuko hissed. But stopping his attacks takes a lot out of me, he admitted. He wondered if that had to do with the alchemical gas as well. Every time he stopped Chitsang's flames, he felt the heat more and more, and his breaths came shallower. Like every exhale permanently deflated his lungs just a little bit more. I don't know how long I'll be able to keep it up. Both of them fled to the pillars around the perimeter of the square, hewn from the same ice-like stone as the Institute itself. Zuko covered his face as the fire immolated the square, missing them by scant seconds. All right, new plan then, said Jet. We split up and go at him from both sides. I'll draw his attacks. 
Zuko clutched his swords. We might be able to reason with them, he said. I almost got through to Chitsang once. I have to try again. You're welcome to try, said another voice, deep and oily, just beyond the pillars at the edge of the Institute's grounds. An Earth Kingdom man in heavy green robes and a long, silky braided beard approached, his hands folded behind his back. The Emperor's eelhound has given his mind fully to me, of his own will. How fortuitous it is that firebenders have now become as powerful as the waterbenders. Zuko angled his blade towards the newcomer, his face settling into a glare. It had been a long time, but he remembered that face and voice. Long Fang! Aang's battle with Hakoda continued after the departure of Seryu and Sedna. He had no time to think of their words, of the battle they waged in another plane unseen by mortal eyes. No time to ponder the return of the comet and the spirit Suza, originally slain over a hundred years ago by Emperor Aniak. Hakoda pressed him every chance he had, rising on a water spout to reach heights only airbenders could. It felt as if the entire ocean rose with him, bombarding Aang from all sides. The spirit world wailed. Aang felt it at his core. Battles raged across the four nations, in the realms of both mortals and spirits. He felt the frenzy and fear of people far away, carried to him over the flow of energies pulsing through the world, and it gave him visions. Hakoda's fleet met with Kuei's over open water, waves thrashing as if in a storm. The navy of Bossingsei outnumbered Hakoda's token fleet on its way to the Earth Kingdom, but they stood no chance against waterbenders in their element at the best of times. They were so, so close to Aang. He wanted to help them, to prevent their suffering before he could feel it carried to him, but Hakoda commanded all of his focus. One misstep and he would find himself sinking beneath the surface, all control lost. But he didn't run. Aang held his own. He scored a hit on Hakoda, shooting a rock directly at his hand to bind it in stone. Aang dragged that stone downward, jerking him off of his water spout and causing him to lose his balance. An arc of wind slammed into him as he tumbled, sending him plummeting into the water dozens of feet below. The tendrils of water he commanded fell with him, and Aang continued his attack by freezing a new iceberg to encase Hakoda inside it. The iceberg burst before Aang could finish, frosty shrapnel flying. Both of them stood on the surface of the water, facing each other amidst the growing turbulence of the sea. "'One thing I don't understand,' said Aang, "'is why Agnaquela? Why turn against your own people?' Hakoda leaned forward and fell into motion, the water rising all around him and Aang as if they had both been encased inside of a tunnel. "'I could have used Seryu's moon to wipe out the Fire Nation or Earth Kingdom,' he answered." But why would I end this war when it keeps me in power? When I can focus the pain and passion of my people outward, rather than being mired in the infighting of our own clans. War brings us profit. It gives us purpose. Aang joined his hands together, and a gout of flame filled the water tunnel, exploding outwards. Before it collapsed, Hakoda pierced it from the inside with ice spikes. One of the spikes sliced across Aang's back, a shallow wound that nonetheless made him stumble. I refuse to believe that's your only reason, Aang said, coating all of his body except for his head in water. You're too clever for that. Hakoda smiled, water coating both of his arms and freezing into long, slim blades. You think highly of me, 
Well then, since you can see right through me, yes, there's more to it. The truth is, I'm tired. Tired of the way spirits have interfered in the lives of men in every age and era. There are spirits who have chosen kings, and spirits who have unmade them. Spirits who have wiped out entire civilizations or gifted the undeserving with riches beyond their wildest dreams. And nowhere in this world are spirits more entrenched than they are in the North Pole. Aang glared. So you're just going to wipe them all out? Innocent people? No, not all of them, he said, freezing the water all around him again. He slid across the ice, his movements smooth and faster than before. Ice discs shot from the water towards Aang, who managed to deflect them with fire and sword. Just those who offer power to the spirits. Those who give themselves the whims of nature. I will subjugate the rest under the uncontested rule of the self. The reins of history belong in the hands of man, and I intend to set us free. Our strength is our own, and only we can empower ourselves. Aang slammed his hands downwards in anger, the island of ice rocking and shattering. All of that? All of this war and suffering? Against your own people? Because you think you're helping us? Aang descended with the weight of a boulder in the water, waves crashing against Hakoda's defenses. You say all of that, but you're using a spirit's power now. You allied with Seryu, did something to bring the moon early. I do what must be done, Hakoda said. And if that means my hands are covered in the blood of my allies and enemies alike, so be it. I may be using a spirit's power to accomplish this goal, but it is the only way to get the power to do what I need to do. So, just this once, I have done what I find distasteful. Besides, it will give me the opportunity to slay Seryu myself, so none can use his power again. Aang almost stumbled. What? Why not? he asked. It was through an alliance with Seryu that my great-grandfather Aniok uncovered the secret to slay Zuza. This will only bring it full circle. Perhaps you can even help me to that goal, Avatar. I'm always open to new allies. Are you insane? asked Aang, scowling in disgust. You'd kill a force of nature, just like your ancestor did? You sound like Jabao, Hakoda mused. He once shared my goal of a world free of the influence of spirits, until I suggested that. Bato, I believe you two have met, was my only other ally in this, but now I bear this mission alone. Bato, Aang furrowed his brow. You sent Bato to the Golden City to kill the fire spirits, didn't you? Not both of them, said Hakoda, spreading his arms. I am not so foolish as that. I intended for him only to kill the spirit of destruction. But don't you think it's sad we need the other dragon to keep fire warm and alive? Something so important to human life. The water swirled underneath Aang as his sword ignited into flame, and he met Hakoda's arm blades. The force of their impact and their bending made the waves around them flatten and surrounding ice shatter. The world needs spirits for balance, Aang said, when they were face to face. You forgot I'm the bridge to the spirit world. My power comes from them. I figured you might say that, Hakoda said. Then he sighed, as if disappointed. 
I figured one day, when all was said and done, I would have to finish you, too. But I suppose you saved me the trouble of having to do it later. Gashun found the halls of the Alchemical Institute eerie, in their resemblance to ice, and surfaces so reflective that they looked like mirrors. It made him feel like he was back in Egnokela, but it was stone. Stone he could bend. He supposed he ought to have felt more comfortable here because of that, especially since he was the only earthbender in the city capable of bending right now. But things were happening so fast that he couldn't keep up with everything. It was a shame that there was only enough of the herbalist remedy for him and Azula. He wondered how Haru was doing. Put me down, brother. I can walk. I think. Nagi's voice sounded a bit clearer than it had since he had found her, so he acquiesced. That poison needle didn't really pierce through my winter robes. I just can't bend. Tai Lee slowed down so that Gashun could gently let his sister walk on her own two feet again. So you're Nagi? I've heard so much about you. Have you? Anything Shun told you about me is a lie, she said, bracing herself against the wall. She massaged her temples. Oh, my head hurts. Tylee scratched her cheek, grinning. Actually, getting Gashun to open up is like talking to a rock sometimes. It was all Yue. Are you okay? Gashun asked, ready to catch her if she lost balance. He had no retort for Tylee. Nagi dragged a hand down her face. I think... I think I'll be okay. It feels like the morning after a Misty Palms cactus juice party. I feel so... floaty. You've been to a Misty Palms party? Gashun's eyes widened in surprise. He always thought his sister would be too straight-laced for that. If you tell Dad, I'm handing you over to the Dai Li, she said. Her face turned green, and she stumbled. For a moment she thought she'd be sick, but she managed to hold it together. I've been to them too, he responded, holding his hands up. He exchanged a glance with Tai Lee, who continued to lead the way. Come on, we need to keep moving. It's so empty here, said Tai Lee, as they passed chambers with kilns, furnaces, and chi path dummies. How are we supposed to find what we need? There are so many rooms. Zuko said the pipes only run underground, right? I could just tear up the floors and see where they lead, Gashun suggested, but as soon as he said it, he knew that would be time-consuming and exhausting. Nagi grimaced, hugging her stomach. Underground, you say? We could... Oh, ugh, that didn't feel good. Do what Toph does. See through the vibrations in the ground? Ever since I learned she could do that, I've been trying with little success. Oh, Toph, I'm worried about her. Last time I saw her, she was in the same condition as I am. I can only imagine what it must be like for her. So that's how she does it. Neat. Tylee stomped her foot and then jumped up and down a few times. Hmm. I've got nothing, she said shrugging after a lengthy pause. Nagi gave Gashun a perplexed glance, but he only shook his head in response. He was used to Tylee by now. 
If there are pipes, they're tying themselves in knots and squiggling like little worms right now, according to what I see, said Nagi, brow furrowed in confusion. So it's up to me, then. Gashun knelt down to place his hand on the ground in an attempt to feel it better. He had no idea what to do. The stone seemed especially firm. He doubted whether any sorts of vibrations could travel through it. First earth spirit bending and now this. Why did all of these really important tasks keep falling to him? The earth seemed unresponsive, refusing to budge and revealing its secrets. Psst! A voice hissed, making them all jump. A girl peeked her head around the corner. What are you doing here? All the researchers went home because of the invasion. Tylee tugged at her parka. We're, um, lost. We got scared of the sky and stuff, you know? So we came here to hide. The girl tilted her head. She looked about their age. You mentioned something about pipes? Are you the sauna maintenance people? Yes, said Tylee, a little too quickly. Yes, we're here to fix it. Then you're looking for the Chamber of Elixirs, she said. Follow me. It's right this way. How lucky, muttered Gashun, low enough so that only Tylee and Nagi could hear. Something about how easy this was seemed suspicious to him, especially since the Institute seemed empty of other workers. The girl led them down a series of short hallways, a confusing maze that didn't seem to be in any specific pattern. You three must be really dedicated to your job the girl said. Coming to work even during an invasion and all? Well, people really like their hot saunas, said Tylee. I mean, can't really blame them. It's luxurious in cold places like this. A boy appeared behind them from a different hallway. Oh, Hana, you found them. Good, I was starting to worry I wouldn't be able to do my hot yoga. Ah, there you are, said the girl. That's my brother Kulik. Don't mind him. Gashun struggled to keep his eyes on both of them. With one ahead and one behind, he kept his hand on the rope at his belt tied to a pair of sandbags. The way both the brother and sister enclosed them in the hall, with one in the lead and the other in the rear, made him uncomfortable. Teeth grit, he decided to take action, and turned to seal the boy off from them with rock that slid out from the wall. Hana, Tai Lee, and Nagi all stopped. I was tired of playing along, he said. You know, I thought you three were stupid for a minute, said Hana, throwing a fist at Tai Lee. But I don't blame you. This'll be more fun. Tai Lee deflected her fist with her forearm, rolling her arm around Hana's in an attempt to strike back. But Hana struck out with her other arm, her fingers extended in a rigid beak-like shape. Tai Lee was forced to take a step out of range. She's a chi blocker! School of the Cranefish Beak, Hana said proudly, backing into a wider chamber. What are you, School of the Circus Hog Monkey or something? Tylee put her hands on her hips, scowling. Excuse me? Don't feed into it, Tylee, said Gashun, holding a stance and standing protectively in front of his sister. He didn't think Nagi was in any condition to fight right now. He expected Kulik to jump out of any of the intersecting hallways. She's making up stupid names to get under your skin. 
That is where I learned chi blocking, Tylee exclaimed, nearly making Gashuen lose his balance. Is that supposed to be funny? The hallway opened up into a chamber as large as an atrium. It had a couple of long tables with various jars and tools on them, but for the most part, it seemed empty, filled mostly with echoes. A handful of tiny vials and jars sat on high shelves at the end of the far room, their contents shimmering in the torchlight. Salt lamps lined the floor, casting the room in a soft glow that seemed to move thanks to the torches ensconced on the walls. Kulik had returned from a different entrance to the chamber, standing at his sister's side and mirroring her stance. We found them, Master Thod, said Kulik. An elderly man entered the chamber from the other side. His face looked like it had been permanently etched into a grumpy frown. These three think they will stop the aromatherapy project. Hmm, they have two benders with them, eh? Thod asked, peering at Gashun and Nagi. Curious. Their connection to the Earth Chakra should have been shut off completely. It appears we'll have to do more testing. One seems to be feeling physical effects more than the other, but even then it is not as intense as I expected. Hmm. Nagi, you take the old guy, Gashun said under his breath. Tylee and I will handle these two. Then maybe we can make them talk. No, said Tylee, facing Thought with her hands held out. He's the dangerous one. I'll take him. I learned a long time ago to stop underestimating old people. School of the Circus Hog Monkey, Thod mused, stroking his beard. It has been many years since I've faced your ilk. Very well, then. Show me what you're made of. Yue didn't know why, but her old master refrained from waterbending, despite the massive advantage it would have given him. Based on what she knew of him, she couldn't tell if it was because he toyed with her, or if he purposely held back out of a sense of honor or desire to test his old student. Master Shimo had always been difficult to read. Their blades clashed, the clang of metal echoing up and down the street. No other foes came to interrupt them. All of their sounds felt so far away. Yue swirled to deflect his blows that felt as if they came from all sides. She tried to keep his lessons in mind, to keep moving and stay on her toes, but Shimo danced circles around her. I thought you always said to keep duels short, Yue said with a grunt, stepping back from him. Unintentionally, she lowered her blade and turned it away, a signal the cook and samurai used when they needed a short break from training. Lest they damage the blade... I also said to never turn on your own, said Shimo, still with his unnerving smile. He did seem to respect the signal, however, and took an equal step back. Lest you wish to feel the bite of those you betrayed. I always thought it worth roughing the edges to take out a traitor, but I suppose under the grace of Shiryu, I can try new techniques. From a distance, he swung his blade in three quick slashes. At first, Yue didn't see anything, but then three gouges appeared in the snow on the ground, and she almost dropped her weapon in pain when they appeared on her arms a moment later. He condensed more water and ice out of thin air, crescent moons appearing all around her. She sliced at them, 
the shallow cuts on her arms stinging in agony in their exposure to the cold, but there were too many for her to deflect all at once. He looked at her only as if he was a farmer, and she a stalk of wheat being reaped by his scythes. Something dark enshrouded her, and for a moment she thought that was the end. But an enormous spirit embraced her from behind. It made her think vaguely of a goat gorilla, but with giant hands resembling a human's flattened into a shadow. It weathered Shimo's blows, and from beyond her shield, his smile finally twisted into a scowl. Not only do you hide behind spirits, but it has to be the impure ones, doesn't it? He asked. You are ignorant of their pain. Your foolishness is one of the main reasons this world is unbalanced. They can't help what changed them, she said. They may be in pain, but they seek me for solace, and I will do everything in my power to give it to them. May spared a glance for Pipsqueak, still unmoving except for his eyes as he leaned against a building, but that was all she had time to do. Sayuk and Anuna worked as a perfect team, a warrior and an assassin, and May had the low ground compared to Anuna flitting across the rooftops, but she couldn't drop her guard for longer than a second unless she wanted to risk Suki turning into a human pincushion in the midst of her battle with Sayuk. Suki ducked and danced between his swings, retaliating with her own but her attempts to use his own strength against him failed. When one of his serrated machetes tore apart her fan when she used it to block, Suki snapped it shut and hurled it at him. She drew the short blade at her belt in the same smooth motion, wielding it alongside her remaining fan in tandem. We can't keep going on like this, May thought. They had been fighting to a standstill, but May knew her ammunition was running low, and she did not know how well stocked Anuna was. A Roku and Kiyoshi warrior fighting side by side, Suki mused aloud between blows. I think we work together pretty well, huh? May smiled. She thought Suki had been about to propose a competition, but she found herself agreeing. Perhaps Suki had sensed her brief doubt, or voiced the thought to dispel her own. I wonder if it was that Kiyoshi's intent when she started up your fighting tradition. Maybe it was, Suki said. Then let's make both avatars proud. Another needle flickered through the air toward them both, but May deflected them. All three avatars, she corrected. We can't disappoint Aang, either. Guess not, said Suki, backing away with her fan held forward like a shield and her blade ready behind her. Though I hope he doesn't go and make the Aang warriors one day. Yeah, that would be dumb, May agreed. Perhaps he would have found the idea amusing. She would have to tell him and Zuko that joke when this was all over. Sayuk pressed his attack. What are you two on about? Nothing that concerns us, dear, said a voice behind them. May whirled around to see Anuna. She'd lost track of her, and now the older woman had managed to reach the top of a two-story woodworker's shop, her hand already in motion. Just the prattling of two children in way over their heads. Her needle struck May's glove, sinking in just deep enough to prick the skin of her hand. May tore it away, but the damage had already been done. Toph could not make any sense of the world around her. 
The strange lightness she had felt in her head and feet gave way to heart-pounding fear. The vibrations spread in ways she never knew them to move before. Buildings grew from the earth, packed underneath the snow, then crumbled again. She thought she sensed things moving in the air, but she could never feel earth completely unattached to the ground before. Other people felt close, then far, and then close to her again. There were times in the spirit world where it felt like the ground shifted beneath her, but it was nothing like this. Only the sounds she heard helped keep her grounded. The voices of her friends. Bandit, stay low. We think the people throwing needles are gone. They chased after Pip and the Duke instead. But we can't say for sure, said Smellerby. To Toph, it seemed for a moment that Smellerby grew to the size of a badger mole and then shrunk again to her normal size. Toph had to grip Smellerby's arm to make sure that that didn't really happen. I think it was one person, said Longshot. She did leave. From the moment Toph expressed that she couldn't see with the earth anymore, Longshot made an effort to speak more than she had ever heard him speak before and she couldn't describe how appreciative it made her feel. She made us get separated. I don't like it. We have to find them. Nongi's with them, too, right? Toph asked. She knew that, but she hated not being able to feel what was happening for herself. It made her doubt everything. She felt irritation and helplessness of her other self. How are they doing this? Did you get hit with some poison or something to mess with your head? I don't know. I know Nagi's our friend, but you have to get out of here. You can't fight like this. She is, said Smellerby. Ugh, hold back. More of those wolf skulls, guys. I want to go back, Toph said. Out of the city. We need to regroup and figure out what to do. Something went wrong. Smellerby held out her arm and pressed Toph against the wall, presumably to hide. The wall felt solid against her back, but it rippled like jelly according to the vibrations. Every time someone goes to the borders of these giant domes, there's some guy shooting down explosions from above. Longshot, can you shoot him down, maybe? Not from this low, he responded. I need a clear shot, or higher ground. Distance presents no difficulty. We need to hit him in the forehead, really hard, Toph said, a memory swimming to the surface. More explosions rocked the earth and the way she perceived it made her lose balance and fall over, despite none of its force physically reaching them. She cried out in anger and pounded her fist against the ground. I hate this! Hey, that's one of our guys, Smellerby said. Toph felt thunderous footsteps crashing towards them, but when the person spoke, she recognized his voice as belonging to someone much smaller than his footsteps suggested. Toph, here you are. Boy, am I glad to find you, said Teo. He flipped upside down, then stood at a complete horizontal against the wall, totally unsupported. Haru cleared the way for me so I could help our people trapped here in the city, but it's chaos. I can barely find anyone but enemies. So you came in willingly? Smellerby asked, dumbfounded. Well, yeah, he responded. He pressed something against the ground that sounded like the butt of a metal pipe or staff. One, a Manon bender, so I can fight. And two, the working theory is that there's a gas coming out from the metal steam tanks that's blocking the chi of our benders. I think I can stop that. Toph clenched her fists. So all we need to do is smash them? Well, no, said Teo. That would leave us unable to regulate the flow. It might just make things worse. I can tinker with them and try to figure out how to turn them off. But I need to get close to them. Right down that way, said Longshot. But Toph didn't know where he pointed. She heard other voices that she could only assume belonged to the enemy. 
Someone shouted. There was a flash of heat and the twang of Longshot's bow before someone else yelped in pain. Someone else shifted the earth, and the figure she thought to be Teo rushed to face him in battle. For a moment, it seemed as if he could be Aang or Sangmu the way he moved. Smellerby guided her by the arm. Toph trusted her, running alongside her friend. If she ran into anything, she would just have to bulldoze through it. She just hoped the earth would make way for her. They stopped near something that radiated heat. Teo strained against it, pressing himself flat on the ground. Then he floated upward, and a giant metal monstrosity appeared directly in front of Toph, hissing and rumbling with unseen machinery. What do you kids think you're doing over there? A rough and gritty voice shouted over to them. Toph froze. She had never met the man, but she remembered his voice. I never forget a voice. That's Zin Fu. She knew him from her other self's memories. Decently skilled as far as earthbenders went, but nothing compared to her, at least under normal circumstances. The earth shook again, the explosions coming even closer. Toph guessed that they had to be as close to the wall as they dared without going out from under the ice domes. Smellerby let go of her. The rumble of the steam tank stopped. The telltale sound of an arrow whizzed through the air, and the crumble of rock slid against the snow. Toph was thrown off her feet. The world really did get upended this time when another blast rang out, explosions following a line at the perimeter of her senses. A sound she had never heard before preceded the explosions, like a massive cloud of buzzard wasps. She landed, hard. For a moment, she didn't sense any vibrations in the earth at all. It was as if the world had gone completely silent. Then it ignited into motion all at once, an overwhelming sensation that made her want to scream. Tylee and Thod battled in a flurry of fists around the chamber. Her style had more mobility than his, involving somersaults and leaps to circumvent his defenses. But Thod had longer reach, and often made use of kicks that battered her arms. His strikes came with the intent to wear her down and soften her defenses enough that her exhaustion allowed him to overpower her. On the other side of the chamber, Gashun did most of the earthbending to ward off Hana and Kulik. Nagi's earthbending looked feeble in comparison, as even lifting a single block of stone looked just as much effort as it would be for Tai Li to pick it up and throw it herself. She tried throwing smaller rock cuffs at them in an attempt to disable either of the pair of the siblings, but her attacks went too wide, or too slow. Thod's heel came down on her forearm, with enough force to make Tai Li wince. That one would leave a bruise. But it had left him open, and she weathered another strike in order to take advantage of that and aim at a chi point under his leg. He limped away from her, cursing under his breath. At the same time, one of his disciples managed to get Nagi in the legs too, sending her sprawling against the wall. Gashun shouted out, hurling one of his sandbags at the end of a rope towards Kulik. He spun the other one in his hand, then slid both ropes across the floor like serpents. Both ropes converged on Hana, tangling up her limbs and making her fall bodily to the floor. Kulik took advantage of Gashun's focus being on his sister, rushing toward him, but the back wall rumbled, and the glass vials and jars on the high shelves rattled. Blocks of the stone that looked like ice launched from the wall toward Kulik, but he weaved around each attack and managed to get through Gashun's defenses, chi-blocking him so he lost control of all of his limbs. Gashun fell to the floor, limp and grimacing. Uh-oh, said Tai Li. While Thod had one leg down, and Hana was tied up in Gashun's ropes, 
she wasn't sure if she could handle both Thod and Kulik at once. Thod had even managed to hit her once or twice, but luckily her parka was so thick that he couldn't get a clear enough shot at her key points. The vials and jars from the shelves toppled and shattered on the floor around Nangi. Potions and unknown liquids bubbled out of some, but many also contained dust and sand in a multitude of colors. No! Thod shouted in alarm. Do you know how rare some of that is? Volcanic sand from the glittering beaches of Quilbear Island. Golden deep sea sand from the gullet of a sand eater. Ground up narwhal horns and crystal dust. Liquefied elephant koi eyes. Okay, I get it. You don't need to do the whole inventory check, said Nagi, wincing. But she smiled, and, from the ground, raised both of her hands. All of the material she could bend from the broken jars and vials rose at her command. Black, deep blue, and glittering gold rose into the air like stardust, their colors swirling together in one of the prettiest displays of bending that Tai Li had ever seen. Even Kulik stopped to stare at it in wonder for a moment, at least until it all barreled into him and hurled him against the table, where he fell unconscious. The act tired out Nagi as well in her current state, and she slumped back against the wall. When Tai Li turned back to Thod, he was holding a vial under his nose that he sniffed deeply. As he did, he shook out his leg that Tai Li had chi-blocked, restoring its usage. Hey! Tai Li exclaimed. That's not fair! And seriously? Why do you have that? Were you expecting to fight another chi-blocker? I need to be prepared for any eventuality, he said, corking the vial. And now, I will fight you with the strength and vigor of a man half, no, a third of my age. Tylee braced herself, but rather than renewing his attack, Thod's eyes rolled to the back of his head and he crumpled to the ground. Huh? she said. Master Thod! Hannah shouted from the ground, still struggling in vain to wriggle free of the ropes. You killed him! A pair of women peeked into the room from the doorway, apparently judging it to be safe. One of them strode out, tossing her braid over her shoulder. Calm down, Hana. We just switched out his strengthening postage with a high dosage of sleep aid. Hana snarled. Neok? But why? Because Thod's the worst boss in the entire world, Neok replied. She knelt down to Gashun and Nagi, uncorking another vial. Here. This one will give you your limbs back, and this one will reverse the effects of the aromatherapy project. You're going to help us? Tylee asked, stunned. Yeah, said the other woman. We know your friend Luten. We saw him fighting outside with that brainwashed wolf skull and that gross long fang guy. Since you beat up our boss for us, we can bring you to where you can reverse the flow and restore bending to the people in the city. We'll filter the remedy through instead. Lu Ten? Tylee asked, clapping her mittens together. Oh, you mean Zuko? Yes, please, that would be wonderful. You'd really help out our invasion force? Geshun asked, rolling his shoulders as he stood again. Neok led the way out of the room. Well, we don't really like our home being turned into a battleground, and that's the Emperor's fault from what we can gather. But also, clearly you've never been in, stuck in a job that you really hated. Zuko swung his swords against the rocks flying his way. 
defending from Long Fang's attacks. But the bigger threat, Chit Sang, continued to fill the entrance square of the Institute with flames. Zuko and Jet ducked behind the monument in the center, letting the earthen rings defend them from the worst of Chit Sang's blaze. Okay, so what's the plan? Jet asked him. The flames flooded around the monument, spilling over and bathing them both in orange light. The heat felt almost unbearable. Zuko could only guess at the state of the side of the monument that took the brunt of the attack. I don't know, Zuko admitted. In the open air, his breathing came a little easier, but it wasn't enough to cleanse him of the gases he had already inhaled. We can't get to Long Fang with Chitsang burning everything he sees, but we're not strong enough to take Chitsang either. Not without my bending. The rings of the monument cracked above them, forcing Jet and Zuko to scramble for different cover. As soon as they emerged, Long Fang sled toward them and shot earthen bullets from his fingers, but Jet managed to deflect them. I don't know why, but something about me really hates you, Jet said, gritting his teeth. Long Fang ignored him, focusing his ire on Zuko. I need to give you payback for your sister, boy, he said. She nearly cost me everything. Zuko ran with Chitsang's fire at his back. So take it up with her! He leapt towards one of the ruined pillars from Longfang's earthbending, climbing up higher to the intact ones even as Chitsang devoured the stone just behind him. With the high ground, Zuko threw darts his way, but Chitsang punched forward with more meteoric flames, turning Zuko's attack into harmless kindling. He had thrown himself off the highest pillar, landing in a somersaulted roll. Your own men are destroying the city, Zuko shouted at him. Even putting innocent people at risk. Is that what you want? Blather at him all you want, said Long Fang, the molten surface of the monument swirling under his power. Heaving under its weight, he threw it towards Jet. It crashed against the ground, but Jet managed to dash out of the way. He wanted this. He is but a simple servant of Emperor Hakoda keeping his head down and his tail between his legs. He won't hear you. Zuko clenched his broadswords tighter. Remember the road you've walked, Chitsang. Or are you just a traitor to the Fire Nation? A traitor to yourself? Zuko's choice of words made Chitsang let out a wordless shout, joining his hands together to unleash another inferno. This one was even bigger than all of his previous attacks, a roiling conflagration that Zuko only avoided by ducking into the nearby doorway of the Institute. Chitsang turned the front of the building into a misshapen, molten mess. Jet called out to him in warning as he skirted around the perimeter of the square. Whatever you're saying, you're only making him angrier. Not a good idea. The voice of his other self rang out at his core. Can you do this? Without your bending, one wrong move. I know. You can't do anything to fix me, can you? I don't think it works like that. But he can hear me, Zuko said aloud. Whatever Long Fang may claim, he can hear me. He didn't need his bending to fight Chitsang. All he had to do was make sure Chitsang heard his words. I am the Emperor's man, said Chitsang, breathing deeply. Since they'd last seen him, Chitsang had tattooed his forehead with a crescent moon. The skin around his tattoo still seemed red and raw. I am his loyal wolf. You are Fire Nation, Zuko said, emerging from the doorway cautiously. Whatever you may believe, whatever you've been through, no matter how many people you've hurt, you're Fire Nation. You can't forget that. You've just been brainwashed. He's been brainwashed his entire life, said Prince Zuko, 
just brainwashing of a different kind. All he's ever experienced is the hatred of his own people for turning against them to be a soldier of the Water Tribes. The Water Tribes look down on you just because of who you are. Maybe, maybe you're letting your skulls lash out on Aniakto because that's what you want to do, too. But you can help instead. You don't want this, do you? If you let yourself be brainwashed, then that means you can... Chitsang leapt high and clapped both hands together, cleaving the ground with a blade of fire hot enough to cut gouges into the stone. I want this, he roared. He didn't aim it towards Zuko directly, but the heat and the fire from his attack roiled above Zuko's head as if from a volcano's pyroclastic flow. Zuko pressed himself against the ground, his parka singed and smoking. Zuko's mind churned for ideas. He's out of balance. Remember what May said? Fire spearbending is possible, so... Assuming you can even manage to bend right now, whatever she did expelled the Nightseer from Ernok's body. This is different. Chitsang slumped forward, his stance almost primal. A future of hating myself is better than no future at all, he said. Chitsang, Long Fang snapped, just as he managed to encase the end of one of Jet's hooks in a block of earth. What was that? Remember... Wolves don't bark. Chet Sang straightened, staring ahead as his eyes dilated. It is as my master said. Wolves do not bark. I have no other choice. Zuko lunged toward him, yearning to feel the comet's warmth, hoping beyond hope that this time the spark of life within him would flare up into an ember and then a blaze. When he stretched out towards Chet Sang, golden light glowed around his hands. Zuko didn't know whether it was desperation, or Tylee and the others succeeding, or something else, but his firebending didn't burn. The warmth felt pleasant, gloves that guided his hands to the tangle of energy within Chitsang. It felt almost as if his hands moved of their own accord. Chitsang stood perfectly still, as if mesmerized by the golden flames. A light flashed behind Zuko's eyes, and he saw things. He saw a child walking through the streets of a port city at the edge of a jungle, guided by the hands of both his parents. They wore the red of the Fire Nation, as did the crowd around them, but the boy and his family seemed separate from the crowd. Above it, he saw jeering, and the family's footsteps quickened. Some threw stones, striking the father twice in the back. The mother wailed, shielding her son, though some still hit him anyway. The father urged them to run, and both mother and child fled. Water tribe warriors patrolled the streets of the city they occupied, and when the mother sought them for help, they only laughed. <laughs> Let these Fire Nation savages sort out their own problems, the warrior said. One last stone struck the father directly in the temple, and when the light flashed again, Zuko saw Chitsang, older now, and striking down his own people in battle, revenge of a sort. He turned in anyone who fought in secret against the water tribes, caught anyone who tried to flee, choice after choice to lead him down a path that eventually ended at Hakoda's feet, a pariah to his people. I will never be forgiven, Chitsang said, ripping Zuko back to the present. His eyes looked normal again, but downcast. He stared at his hands, but one moved up to touch his forehead tattoo. These hands are far too bloody. Maybe not, said Zuko, as he lowered his hands back to his sides. But that's not why you should be doing the right thing. Redemption should be something you fight for in spite of that. Even if no one in the world ever forgives you, 
You should do it for your own honor. Shitsang narrowed his eyes at Zuko and stepped back. What do you know of redemption? Of honor? I threw mine away long, long ago. The voice inside Zuko felt distant. I know a few things. Zuko shook his head. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever you did in the past, you can change it now. I understand what you've done to survive, but now you can look ahead to the future. Never forget who you are. Shitsang had gone completely still. When he looked at Zuko now, something seemed to have changed in his eyes. He lowered his hands and bowed his head in something like defeat. No! Long Feng shouted, stomping over to them. What did you do? Jet crossed his hook swords, still wielding both, even with the tip of one encased in stone. Hey, don't turn your back on me! Long Feng looked back at him and scowled. I'm done playing around with you, boy! In a flash, he corrected his stance and stomped his foot. Almost in slow motion, Zuko saw a lethal spike shoot up from the ground just underneath Jet. Right when Zuko thought it was about to impale him, Jet spun around the sneak attack and hurled his sword at Long Fang in one smooth action. The side that was encased in stone struck Long Fang head-on, dazing him long enough for Jet to close the distance between them. With his remaining blade, he hooked Long Fang through the shoulder of his robes, jerking him forward so his skull slammed against Jet's knee. The deposed king lent wimp, falling to the ground in a heap. That's what he gets, Jet said, wiggling his sword free and picking up the other. He smacked it against the ground to break the rock encasing the end of it. Don't think you've won, Chitsang muttered to Zuko. I may not be fighting you anymore, but Emperor Hakoda's plans won't be stopped. Zuko sheathed both of his swords, judging the threat from Chitsang to have abated. But we'll try anyway. That's what we do, no matter how difficult the struggle seems. Chitsang clenched his fist. I wanted to erase doubt, but you've done it so easily, even without weasel lizards like him poking around your mind. You're not going to hesitate at all, huh? He jerked his chin towards Long Fang. I guess it's going to count for something. All right, I'll go call off the skulls. Yan Huoli especially, before he brings down the entire city. There are kids down there. Zuko smiled with relief. Thank you. Siku and Sura wouldn't want you to let that happen. Shitsang only grunted in response. Zuko! called a voice from behind him. He turned to see Tai Lee running towards them from the doorway of the Institute and braced himself, worrying she might have been in trouble. Tai Lee? We did it! We turned the bending back on! I got this potion for you! She waved at him with a stoppered bottle of something clutched in her hand. Gashan and Nagi came behind her, with Nagi even walking upright and unsupported. As soon as Tai Lee noticed him standing next to Chitsang, she froze. Uh, guess you don't need it anymore? No, I still could use it, he said, holding back a laugh at the expression on her face. The fighting is far from over. Even as the words left his mouth, the sky changed again. Despite their small victories, the world fractured. Above the skies of Aniakto, rifts appeared like claws leaving scars in the air. Dark and light spirits spilled forth, with many battling above the city, while others flew elsewhere as if hungering for a feast. At the North Pole, an entire forest of crystalline trees grew from the canals, vines climbing up the cliffsides bordering Agna Quala. 
whirlpools swallowed ships off the coast of the Golden City as two fleets battled, fire and water clashing. Elsewhere in the world, gravity released its hold and massive stones levitated in the air, unbidden by any earthbender. Animals rampaged and fires came to life as if the worst fears of nature itself manifested. Aang saw it all. He saw the struggles of his friends and allies as they battled for their lives. He saw the showdowns outside of Aniakto and the waters off the coast of the Golden City. He saw the devastation spreading across the world as the spirit world clashed with this one, and he knew time was almost up. Wheels of white fire circled around Hakoda, condensed to concussive disks that shredded through his defenses of ice. Hakoda surfed around and across the surface of water, pelting Aang with a series of whips. His whips circled around each other, pumping water into a massive bullet that devastated the cliff behind Aang, chunks of it plunging into the sea. Aang swung his arms to summon a tidal wave that was so wide Hakoda had no choice but to retreat backward, toward land and snow, but now even the water level had risen due to their clash. "'Can't you tell what's happening?' Aang asked him, almost begging him to see reason. The whole world is in peril. This has to stop. Hakoda flattened his palms, angling towards Aang an attack. It is only in peril because of the spirits. Some spirits, yes, Aang admitted, but Shai Bao had a hand in it too. And some of the blame is with me as well. I can't deny that, but I'm going to set things right. Snow piled high behind Hakoda as he prepared to utilize it. Jai Bao also caused this? He was trying to save the world, Aang said, lowering from his spire of water, just as I am trying to do. And just as you are in your own way, aren't you? You think what you are doing is going to save the world, save humanity. You won't convince me away from my goals, said Hakoda his voice and gaze wintering. Rather than using the snow behind him, he held out his hands toward Aang, and Aang knew what he intended just a second before it happened. Aang's limbs splayed out, control ripped away from him, but Aang keenly felt the blood in his veins, and with only his own rudimentary knowledge of bloodbending, he fought back. Saryu's moon continued to shine bright overhead, empowering him to wrench control of his limbs back from Hakoda. He strained as Hakoda tried to force him to his knees, his head bowing towards the snow, but Aang's arms only quivered. Hakoda renewed his attack, forcing his will against Aang's, but Aang continued to resist. He diverted some of his willpower to Hakoda, remembering that another counter to bloodbending was to retaliate against his attacker. Hakoda grunted under the force of their invisible battle, his knees buckling. Aang fought to make him stand down, but he knew he could just as soon end this a different way. With the power thrumming between them, Aang felt as if he held lightning. He could have aimed it all at Hakoda, but instead, his hand fell a fraction. He heard a snap, and then pain flooded his senses. Aang's left arm twisted, and he gasped in pain, the force between them vanishing. He fell to his knees, clutching his arm and looking up at Hakoda who rose back to his feet and gazed at him without pity. My nation, my ship, is the only one strong enough to guide the world through this storm, he said. If my actions make you, or the rest of the world, 
think of me as an evil conqueror, then so be it. You cannot defeat nature, Aang said with uneven breaths, coating his broken arm in water and then freezing it, hoping to numb the pain as a temporary measure. Beyond Hakoda, in the sky, he saw three dark spirits soaring towards them. We need the spirits, just as they need us. Imbalance can be caused by any of us, but we can bring it balance back, too. But only if we work together. Hakoda scoffed at him. Your ideals and mine can never be reconciled. You said earlier that you hoped I could help you, that you didn't want to carry out your mission alone, Aang said. I think, despite everything, there's hope that we can learn from each other. Your methods and mine may both be flawed in some ways, but we both want the same thing, to save this world. Just as Jai Bao did, but Jai Bao had refused Aang's attempts to reason with him. The dark spirits came closer, and Aang realized Azula, Sokka, and Katara rode on top of them. When they landed, Hakoda looked over his shoulder at them. You think we can work together, after everything? That this world can be saved with spiritual aid? Aang's companions dismounted. They fanned out, helping Aang to surround Hakoda with their bending at the ready. With all of them empowered by the celestial objects in the sky, Aang knew at last that this war would see its end. But they couldn't be complacent. Katara's presence, in particular, made him anxious. He hoped she would see reason now that they outnumbered Hakoda and should be able to overpower him. With all of us, Aang said in answer to Hakoda, with our hearts and minds joined, human spirit and spiritual intervention. With his eyes lingering on Sokka and Katara, Hakoda raised one hand high as if in surrender. But then the snow circled around him at high speeds like a blizzard. Aang lost sight of the others behind it, but he launched white fire from his uninjured right hand just as the glow of Azula's blue fire shot into the blizzard as well, together trying to block Hakoda from escaping. The blizzard strengthened, rising higher, and the cold intensified with it. Sokka circled around on a slide of ice, using his own bending in an attempt to calm the storm, but his eye widened in something like panic. Aang focused on the blizzard, trying to peer into the blinding white for any sign of what Sokka saw. All at once, the ice and snow stopped whirling and fell back into silence. When the dust cleared, Katara and Hakoda stood together with her blade through his back. Blood stained the snow, and Hakoda fell to his knees with a grunt when she pulled her blade free. Katara, no! Sokka yelled out, but she only turned away from them without a word and fled across the snowfields on a wave of water and snow. She didn't turn back, even as Sokka continued to scream out her name. At the sudden turn in the fight, Aang's good hand had automatically gone to the hilt of his sword again in reflex. As he gazed down at his fallen enemy, he gripped it for a moment. Then, once again, he let his hand fall away. It would have been easy to let Hakoda bleed out on the snow. But Aang couldn't leave him to die any more than he could deal the killing blow himself. He had made his decision and long ago come to the conclusion that he could no longer fall back on the easy choices. He and Azula looked at each other, unspoken promises passing between them, while Azula hovered in place with blue fire under her feet. She darted across the night, 
pursuing the trail of snowfall marred by Katara's passage. Putting his disappointment in Katara aside, Aang braced himself for what he would do. Sokka, Aang said. He approached Dakota, who stared up at Aang as if accepting his loss, his choking wet with blood. Water rose to Aang's hands, softly glowing with light. All of his past lives threatened to burst free, but when Aang spoke, it was with his voice only, and he maintained control. Now was not yet the time. Help me. Our fight won't end this way. Author's Notes So that's all of the various spirit-bending abilities finally revealed. For air spirit bending, they can cleanse unbalanced energy in highly spiritual places and also use the spirit projection technique that Jinora uses in Legend of Korra. Jinora describes it as air bending with, quote, a bit of spirit stuff, unquote, so I chose to interpret it this way. Fire spirit bending is essentially full on exorcism of spirits that possess people, which made to the Nightseer. But it is also a sensory ability and can cleanse supernatural ailments of the mind, like brainwashing or memory loss which the sage does for Korra in Legend of Korra, which inspired my ideas for spirit bending techniques aside from water spirit bending in general. One more chapter to go. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, like, subscribe, or favorite to show your support. You can find us on Tumblr at avatardistortedreality-podcast. You can find us on Twitter at atladistortpod and on Reddit at Distorted Reality Pod. If you already follow us on social media, please reblog, retweet, or upvote our posts to show your support. Feel free to message us on social media or send an email to avatardistortedrealitypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to give us a tip for the work that we do, there is a support button on our Anchor site anchor.fm slash atla-distorted-reality. Of course, we appreciate but do not expect tips. To contact Distorted Reality's author, Dathan, you can find him on Tumblr at cogflox. That's C-O-G-F-L-O-X on Tumblr. If you have a friend who you think would enjoy Distorted Reality, whether it's the work itself or our content, please share it with them. All art used was created by Tumblr user Avatar Distorted Reality. Not Avatar Distorted Reality Dash Podcast, that's us. They are also responsible for translating scenes into comic book form, which is one of the more famous ways that people have been introduced to the fic. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.